The history of crows is a history of people, the scientists, engineers, and others who've harnessed the power of the electromagnetic spectrum to protect and defend their nations. In this episode, we're honoring the contributions of three women whose discoveries, inventions, and insights made a lasting impact on electromagnetic spectrum operations, and in some cases, helped turn the tides of war. While we celebrate these and other women's achievements, we must also acknowledge that women in EW have faced significant barriers in their careers, even barriers to simply be considered equal members of society. This episode is dedicated to all women of EW, those that impacted the past and those that are impacting the present and future. Our journey begins in Sydney, Australia, in the early days of the 20th century, where a bright young woman had a keen interest in electricity. Her name was Florence Violet McKenzie. When Mackenzie decided to turn her interest into a career, she had to first create a novel solution that would allow her to earn a degree. Author David Duffy shares the story of her incredible journey. She was born in 1890 and she decided she was going to train as an engineer. Now, back then in Australia, you, well, there just weren't any women doing it, but they, she enrolled. She had some trouble getting, in, getting enrolled, partly because she needed an apprenticeship. And well, they said, look, yes, we'll, we'll take women. Just go and find a company that will take you on as an apprentice. So she went and bought her brother's failing engineering company and apprenticed herself to her own company and went back and said, is that good enough? (laughs) So that's how she got into the engineering course. Violet Wallace, as she was then known, earned her electrical engineering diploma in 1922, even though she had already been working as a professional electrical contractor, installing electricity in homes and businesses while working toward the degree. After earning her diploma, she developed a new interest that came to be the focus of her early career. But after she'd finished, she got really interested in this new technology called wireless, basically, and and fascinated by it. And back then, you couldn't just buy a radio off the shelf. You couldn't walk into a shop and just get all the equipment you can get now this you had to buy build it yourself and so in the in the 20s there was just a small group of people who were really into this new technology and they were buying all of these components and she was part of that movement which it really was a movement to get radio up and running and helped set up some of the earliest radio stations in Australia. But when she first got into it, she had an engineering shop at the time that she'd bought. She bought this failing engineering store selling generators and other stuff, and it wasn't doing very well, which is probably why the previous owner had gone bust. But she decided to change the entire focus of it and turned it in. It was in the middle of Sydney, and it was the first one in Australia. It was selling components, electronic parts. It was the first shop of its kind, and she was known across the country. This is, And again, this is 20 years before the Second World War. She was already famous for being this entrepreneur who, who started this, this amazing wireless and electronics and electrical parts shop. The wireless shop opened in 1922, the same year she earned her diploma, and it became the hub of her activities. It was here that she met her future husband, also a wireless aficionado, and she and Charles McKenzie married in 1924. She also partnered with some of her other shop customers to create a magazine. 
So she and some friends, one of whom was a, a journalist, got together and said, look, there's no publication that we want about all the stuff we're interested in. So they just got together and they started producing this magazine. They had a few hundred copies. The first issue, the line was out the door and down the street. And it just before long, it was they were selling thousands and thousands of copies a week. It became quite a big deal. By the 1930s, Florence Violet McKenzie decided she wanted to help women learn about electricity and radio. In 1934, she founded the Electrical Association for Women in Sydney, and within two years, she had sold the wireless shop to focus her full attention on the association. But war was on the horizon. It was 1939, and Australia was entering World War II. Mackenzie recognized that she was uniquely qualified to help Australia and the Allies, particularly to help them meet a specific need she knew would come. So she established the Women's Emergency Signaling Corps. The Women's Emergency Signaling Corps. So this sounds all very formal and official. And when I started reading the war histories, I just thought it was a sort of a branch of some military structure. It wasn't real in the sense that that's just the name she gave to her own training operation that she set up in a wool shed in Sydney. Here's a person who decided for free and without any government subsidy or anybody's permission, started training women to participate in the armed services during a war. Nobody told her to do it, nobody asked her to do it, and she just started doing it. She realised that Australia had a fairly primitive sort of signals infrastructure at the time, and she thought they're going to run out of... And Morse code was critical to how the telecommunication system ran. Uh, mid-century and in the first half of the 20th century. And she and she had the insight that Australia was vulnerable if there was a war to not having enough people who could actually do Morse code. And she thought, we're going to run out. If we go to war, we're going to run out. So she just simply put ads in the newspaper saying, ladies, come and learn Morse code. And so girls were coming up to school, you know, office workers were going during their lunch break or after work. And she was teaching them not just Morse code, she was teaching them semaphore. She was teaching them how to assemble radios uh, and how to diagnose radio problems. She was teaching the structures of the the signal structures that are used uh, in the different armed forces and including cryptological structures, you know, groups of four and groups of five. And she was teaching them all of this stuff to do with signals, right? Um, And they were actually going out into the park nearby and they were rigging up uh, antennas and aerials, these girls. She she designed a uniform for them. And and then she was right, the Australia did run out of men who could do Morse code and the Prime Minister and the Minister for Defence were in in the news saying, please, does anybody know this? Does anybody have these skills? Come and talk to us, we need you. And so she actually went to the government and said, well, guess what? And she said, did this at a time when there were no women in the armed services. He said, well, I've trained thousand women up to the standards required by the military. Do you want them? So the Prime Minister said no. And then the Defence Minister said no. The Air Force said no. And then she went and appeared before the Navy Board and explained to them what she'd been doing. And they sent a representative up to Sydney to check out her school, <laughs> signalling school, blown away. Here are all these young women with, with these amazing talent in all sorts of things to do with radio. I went back and recommended, yeah, let's take these girls. So they actually started letting her girls into the Navy. And that's how, in Australia, that's how women got into the armed services, was was through her. Mrs. Mack, as she was affectionately known, trained 3,000 women in telegraphy and radio, and many of them went on to train others, including many men from the Allied forces. 
Australia became quite a focus for um, sort of as a military base, and a lot of Americans were turning up. A lot of young American men being shipped out by the thousands, and they were ready for war, but they didn't have the skills yet. And the Americans were actually sending their men to her warehouse by the thousands, and they were being trained by Mrs. Mack and her girls. A lot of American Navy, but also American. I believe army army signals as well, and she was training them in all sorts of things, and Australian servicemen as well. They're all turning up and being trained by her and her girls, who are all doing it on a volunteer basis. And uh, and she was responsible for training more than ten thousand men by the end of the Second World War. An incredible achievement, aside from persuading Australia to actually allow women into the armed services. So that's what she did. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely amazing. And really just kept the whole infrastructure of signals training going. Florence Violet McKenzie broke barriers in education, engineering, radio, and the military. She was a trailblazer whose contributions to the Allied effort in World War II deserve to be remembered and honored. While Mackenzie was training women in Australia, another heroine of electronic warfare was working to protect Britain from the German Luftwaffe. Her name was Joan Curran. Joan studied physics at Newnham College in Cambridge in the latter half of the 1930s. At the time, Cambridge did not award degrees to women, but Joan's skills were impressive and she earned a government grant to continue her education. Joan chose to go to the prestigious Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge, where she worked with Sam Curran, her future husband. As they started working under the direction of physicist Philip D., Britain declared war on Germany, and the Currans then focused their work on the war effort. Together, they developed a proximity fuse, which detonates a device when it reaches a certain distance from a target. It eventually became a very important factor in Britain's defense but that was only the beginning for Joan. In 1942, she developed a technique that would greatly impact the Allies' efforts in World War II. It was called window, or as we know it today, chaff. With this technique, Joan developed a method to thwart radar systems by dropping aluminum strips from aircraft. These small strips reflected radar waves, appearing the same as a large aircraft or fleet of planes. This new technique had the capability to greatly confuse the enemy's air defenses. The first serious use of chaff was in Operation Gomorrah, the week-long bombing of Hamburg, Germany, in 1943. It was so effective that only a dozen of the nearly 800 bombers involved in the first night of the eight-day mission were lost. Joan Kern's chaff next played a significant role in the D-Day invasion or more precisely, in the Allies' massive diversion effort to convince the Germans that the invasion would begin in the far north of France. Two chaff drops, along with dummy parachutists, convinced the enemy that an invasion had begun far from the beaches of Normandy. The Allies' success in D-Day was a turning point in World War II, and Joan's chaff was one of the contributions for this victory. Joan and Sam Curran also traveled to the United States during the war, where they worked on the most secret project around, the Manhattan Project, which helped to establish the processes for enriching uranium that would eventually lead to the creation of the atomic bomb. The chaff that Joan Curran invented in Britain is still used today. 
The technology has advanced from aluminum-coated paper chaff to aluminum-coated glass fibers. Joan's significant contributions to the Allied victory in World War II is often overlooked, but she is one of history's most important crows. Across the Atlantic, women were contributing to the war effort in many ways. From the Women's Army Corps to Rosie the Riveter, their contributions were critical to Allied victory. One amazing woman had a particularly creative idea for preventing torpedoes from being jammed. This idea was rejected by the U.S. Navy at the time, but it became a critical foundation for much of our modern communications infrastructure. Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler was born in Vienna, Austria in 1914. Her father was a banker and would often take her on walks through town, pointing out the latest technologies and explaining how they worked. This led to her lifelong interest with invention. After a brief film career in Europe, she made her way to the United States, where movie mogul Louis B. Mayer convinced her to change her name and began promoting her as the world's most beautiful woman. Now known as Hedy Lamarr, she quickly became a star. But even through all the stardom, she maintained her interest in tinkering with new inventions. For example, she designed an improved traffic light that used sensors. So when World War II broke out, she and a composer friend had an idea. Science writer and editor Dr. Kimberly Moravec tells us her story. She was a film actress and the trophy wife of weapons manufacturing husband Fritz Mandel. In 1937, she disguised herself as a maid and fled to Paris and then Hollywood, where she became a prolific and successful actress in movies such as Samson and Delilah. And she was an adventurous and curious person who had many interests throughout her life. George Antile was the son of a shoe store owner in New Jersey. He was an avant-garde composer, a pianist and author. He'd spent time in Europe, but settled in Hollywood to compose film scores for movies. He was known as a bad boy of music, and like Hedy Lamar, he had a wide range of interests throughout his life. Lamar heard that the Navy was trying to develop radio-controlled torpedoes, but that there was a problem. So if the enemy knows the frequency you're using to control your missile, it can jam that signal or provide false information. And that causes you to lose control of the missile and miss the target. And Lamar had become fiercely patriotic and was even thinking of quitting acting and offering her services to the U.S. government. The story goes that Hedy Lamar initially contacted George Antile because she wanted to ask his advice about female endocrinology. He'd written articles about female attractiveness, and as it was for any actress of the time, her appearance was fundamental to success in her career. But as it often does, their conversation soon turned to the topic of torpedoes. And so Hedy Lamar provided the theoretical basis of the concept of frequency hopping. So in their proposed system, you switch the frequency you use for the control signal. You do this really quickly and in a seemingly random pattern, and the enemy can't determine the right frequency to attack. And George Antile worked out a mechanism to implement the theory. He was a musician, so he worked with concepts that he was basically familiar with, and that is player pianos. The system uses 88 frequencies, and that's the number of keys a piano has. So both George and Hetty were amateur inventors. They didn't have the resources or contacts to build a working prototype, so they first filed the patent and then George tried to drum up interest in its further development. This turned out to be hard to do. Uh, the Navy wasn't really interested, so the patent was never classified and the system was never built. I think there are two main reasons the idea wasn't adopted. 
First, the frequency switching mechanism is a mechanical system and mechanical systems are known to be bulky and prone to failure. And that's exactly what you don't want inside a missile. The electronics that make the switching mechanism easy to implement wouldn't be invented for many years. Second, the pattern for switching frequency in the missile, it has to be perfectly synchronized with the pattern in the mothership. If they lose that, there's no way to recover the signal. So practical systems that have been developed based on frequency hopping have to use some sort of self-synchronizing mechanism so the issue isn't a problem. And Lamar and Antile's patent didn't really address that problem. Lamar and Antile's patent was ignored by the U.S. Navy, but it was rediscovered in the 1950s during patent searches by telecoms companies who were developing mobile phone specifications, and they were using a similar method. So the method they were developing is actually called code division multiple access, and that's a subtype of direct sequence spread spectrum, or DSS. And DSS is very similar to frequency hopping, but it solves the synchronization problem using correlation. So you don't have to have a synchronization method, a separate one, in addition to the frequency hopping, and that makes it more practical to use. So these engineers who worked for the telecoms companies, they found Lamar and Antile's patent and they referenced it, and that's why it's associated with mobile phones and GPS today, even though the technology isn't quite the same. Now, these same companies, they went on to develop Wi-Fi, and there are many techniques that are more sophisticated and secure than frequency hopping that are used in Wi-Fi today. However, it actually is used in the earliest version of Wi-Fi, and to my surprise, uh, this early Wi-Fi is still used in a few places. So Hedy Lamar and George Antile, together they sort of worked out the theory which Hedy provided and the mechanism which George provided, and they took it to their friend Samuel McCone, who was at Caltech, an engineer, and he helped them to word the patent and make the application. So that's, that's pretty much what they did. <laughs> Hedy Lamar, Joan Curran, and Florence Violet McKenzie, three women whose creativity and ingenuity contributed to the Allied victory in World War II and to modern electromagnetic warfare. Three people who shared a common challenge. They were women in a male-dominated world. Joan Curran, for example, was not awarded an actual college degree until she received an honorary degree from the University of Strathclyde in 1987, nearly 50 years after she completed her studies. There were barriers for Florence Violet McKenzie. There were barriers during the Second World War about, yeah, getting the government and getting the powers that be and the armed forces to take women seriously as people who can actually help, who want to help, have the skills uh, and have the ability to do so. And that was a long campaign, really, and, and quite hard. Britain, for example, had already started taking women into the armed services, and yet there was still this resistance in Australia. Uh, and so... She just pushed and pushed. And I suppose her style was more about, she was not a confrontational person. She liked to just, although she pushy, pushy, but in a nice way. Let me put it that way. And Hedy Lamar had similar challenges. It's without a doubt that Hedy Lamar faced a lot of discrimination in her life because she was a woman and because she was a beautiful actress. I don't think her gender was a particular reason this technology was ignored. If it were, we'd all know George Antile as the inventor of frequency hopping, and her contribution would have been completely ignored. But that said, when she tried to join the National Inventors Council to further help the U.S. government, she was told it would be better to use her celebrity status to sell war bonds. And ultimately, that's what she did to support the war. 
So in a way, we'll never know her true potential as an inventor. The Association of Old Crows salutes these women and their contributions. We honor all the women who have worked in and contributed to the many advancements in electromagnetic spectrum operations today and throughout history. This podcast is brought to you by the Association of Old Crows. Learn more at crows.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.